can see from this slip, it's part of a series that we've mentioned before that we're preaching and teaching from, but you never saw the sentence. And so here it is, values of Bigger Christian Center in a big, long sentence broken into eight parts. The Bible is our authority. Prayer is our means. Dependency on God is our posture. Restoring relationship between man and God is our passion. Love is our motive. Service to God and others is our expression. His promise to return is our urgency. And to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, is our goal. These eight pieces of this one long sentence, we've been trying to just take one week at a time and speak directly to it. Today it's my opportunity to talk about love is our motive. I wonder if you'd just read that out loud with me one more time. The Bible is our authority. Prayer is our means. Dependency on God is our posture. Restoring relationship between man and God is our passion. Love is our motive. Service to God and others is our expression. His promise to return is our urgency. To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant is our goal. As you can see in the sentence at the top, values related to the great truths of the gospel, values are extracted from the Word of God. This is our value system in a world that carries a different value system. We're, uh, we're different. Amen? Amen? We're different. Love is our motive. For what? For these things, for serving others, for serving God, for life itself. Love really should be our motive. A definition for motive, and there are lots of them, Excuse me. the underlying reasons for a course of action. The scriptures stress the importance of doing things with the intention of honoring and glorifying God and building up his people. Our motives should be defined by wanting to honor and glorify God and to build up his people. I think you might agree with me that we live in an era, in a generation where love's been derailed like a train. That train, once derailed, if you've ever seen a train wreck, that train never reaches its destination. And our society, our culture, may repair the rails, but they'll never put that engine back on that track. They want a different one. Our generation wants a different locomotive. It wants a different engine, one that's more culturally relevant to them, one that is more desirable than the one God had designed. They want one that fits and suits them. They want a, a, a new train that is defined by a cultural standard in a culture that's lost its ability to actually define true love. This generation's being offered alternative gratifications in place of sincere love. Things like lust, greed, power, 
self-satisfaction, short-term pleasures, and success. All of these have replaced our long-term emotional and passionate connectedness with others. It's been derailed. Love has been derailed. Anytime you replace God as the center for love's definition, it leaves a void that cannot be filled. Instead, everything possible is offered to try and fill that gaping void, but nothing can fill it. We are empty still. Love's portrayed in our books, on the stage, and especially on the screen, regularly. It's portrayed as a simple, flesh-driven, sentimental, soulish kind of thing. One that finds its fulfillment in someone or something else outside of our own person. It's suggested to us that love must come to us from someone or something to make us happy. We can't really experience true love except in a horizontal relationship. And it doesn't really matter which way you define that. That's what we're being told. However, love is found here. 1 John 4.10 and 1 John 4.19 both say similar things. Herein is love. Herein is love. God loved us first. God loved us first. 1 John 4. Verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I always stop there because in the King James or the New King James, propitiation is a word that I rather doubt any of you use in your regular vocabulary. Down at the Stater Brothers, you probably don't talk about propitiation in aisle two. Propitiation is a word that I rather doubt any of you use in your regular vocabulary. Down at the Stater Brothers, you probably don't talk about propitiation in aisle two or in the produce section. It's not a common word, but it is an important one. It's a word that describes Christ through his sacrificial death as appeasing the wrath of God. He is the one who appeases the wrath of God that is set against us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice for our sins to appease the wrath of God that was held against us. In verse 19, it simply simply says this, we love him because he first loved us. Some versions leave out the first hymn. We love because... He first loved us. 
The experience is for when we understand that God loves his creation and man is his crowning work. All other parts of creation function as God designed them to. to. But you and I were given the ability to disobey God. Man was given the free will, and he exercised it. The only part of God's creation that was disobedient was us. And when we experience love for the first time, it's when we realize and we come to see clearly that even though we have disobeyed him, he responded to our need by sending his son to earth as a man to save us from this inborn disobedience. We sometimes fall prey to this joke where the Bible says all have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God, right? And God sent Jesus to save us from all of our falling shorts. I remember the day I first experienced the true love of God. As a young person, lost and wandering and trying to stuff the void with anything I could get, most recently the use of drugs. And I won't share my whole testimony, but standing down at Jack in the Box right here in the middle of Big Bear Lake, having just taken some hallucinogenic drugs, waiting for them to hit my bloodstream, and two guys walked up and said, Would you like to talk about Jesus? I answered yes because I thought it would be the greatest trip of the day. And and quite literally, truthfully, I was in search. He was drawing me. The Bible says no man comes to God unless he first is drawn by God to himself. And so I was in search. And then he sent this appointment to meet me. And those drugs never hit my system. They may have been in my system, but nothing ever occurred. And that day I gave my life to Christ. Standing out behind town on Cameron Boulevard in the woods, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And even now I moved emotionally because I remember the lifting of the load of sin off my little 15, 16, 17-year-old life and not ever understanding that that load of sin was on me and that I had offended God and that I was his enemy and his wrath was against me. But he sent these guys to tell me about the genuine, true love of God. And that even though you're a sinner, and even though you've strayed, and even though you've been an antagonist to him, he loves you with an everlasting love. And you can respond to him by simply saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart. We bowed our heads and prayed in a little circle of three. And when we got done, tears were streaming down my face, which I didn't really understand. They asked me, how do you feel? I said, I feel light. I feel as though I could float away. And they, and they grinned at each other and said, there's the load of sin being lifted. And I experienced the love of God. I knew nothing. I was not educated about it. I didn't know about it. But I experienced it. And I was free. You know, I've been free ever since. When we first understand that God loves us, Individually, we accept it. We respond to his plea, though we may not know what it is, when he says, all you who are heavy laden, weary, come to me, and I'll give you rest for your souls. 
I'll make it better for you. Let's exchange yokes. I'll take yours, and then I'll give you mine. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. I found rest for my soul. You found rest for your soul. You experience the love of God. And we find ourselves against the culture now. It says love has to be experienced horizontally from some person or something. It has to come to you from outside. You say, no, it comes from inside where the love of God dwells in my heart. It comes from a being born again by God's Spirit coming to life in me. By me receiving forgiveness, by you receiving the forgiveness of Christ and being born again, now he's inside and true love resides within us. And now love becomes our motive. I can only understand true love if I understand God loves me. And it has to be way more than just a mental assent. It has to be an experience. And maybe I'm out on a short limb here. I think even the hardest of hearts is touched deeply emotionally by the love of God. I don't think you can just get it like buying it off the shelf and acquiring it as some mental ascent. I think it touches deep into the center of every core person, and it does a little melting in there. And even the hardest and most stoic figure, even though they're, and I've seen this, even though their facial expression and their posture doesn't change, they pray and ask Christ to come in and tears stream down their face. Because the love of God accomplishes something in us that nothing else can. Here in First John, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Can I just inject this for a moment? I want to talk today, of course, about why love is our motive. But as this has been stirring in me, and I know anticipating this simple message this morning, all week long, knowing this was coming, and maybe for your week coming, it'll be the same. My path was crossed by some unlovable people. People, even some people from my past, that quite frankly, did not want to see me. And there they were. And in those moments, I had a choice to make. Would I love them as Christ loved me? Would I make an expression toward them that would favor the love of God? Or would I stand still in that place of fear about a broken relationship or about a person who didn't want to see me? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You've done it too. If you've ever been to the grocery store and did not want to see people. And all of us have been there. You know, you're pushing your cart and you're looking for stuff, but you're looking for people. 
and you look down and you go, oh, so-and-so's here. And you duck the next aisle. And you kind of remember, they were going that way, I'll go this way. Because if I see them, I'll never get out of here. Or you don't want to see them because of a past infraction of relationship that occurred. And God let me experience this message this week before I could ever talk about it. And I want to say that successfully by the Holy Spirit's power, I was able to look into the eyes and the lives of those people and allow them to look into mine and, and truly experience the love of God. I was willing to, I, re, I reached over one counter so quickly this one, in the post office. Anita, thanks for the venue. I turned around, and there she was. And she cordially said hello, and I leaped over the counter, and I grabbed her. <laughs> and I hugged her. I said, it's just so good to see you. We haven't seen each other for so long. I do those things in public, so I can be in trouble. <laughs> Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. And when we talk about love as our motive, we have to include these next couple of verses. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's pretty bold. That's pretty straightforward. I love God, but he hates his brother. Mark him. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now certainly that is a direct commandment that comes from Christ himself when he said, you've got to love one another. I give you a new commandment. John referred to this all the time. Jesus gave, gave us this new commandment, which isn't new, it's old. And it's this. Love one another. So inside the family of God, inside those who have accepted Christ, all of us who went to jack-in-the-box, if you will, and had our experience with the love of God and found it individually and personally rebirthed in him, now have the charge to look at every other believer in the heart of love, the same way God sees them. And that's the key, is asking God to let you see them the way he sees them, not the way you see them to accept them the way he accepts them and the way he accepts me, not the way I want to revise their acceptance plan 
according to my standards, but to actually love people. You know, it's so much easier, really, when you just break down and say, I'm going to love people. It's a lot easier to go grocery shopping. It just is. You know, when you just walk up to people and you love them and it's honest and open, there's just no defense for it. And you can actually say, well, if they don't like me back, that's okay. I can do okay with that because I still love them. And maybe somewhere down the road it will get better for us together. But if not, I'm still not going to let it trouble me. I'm going to love them the way God loves them. First Corinthians 13 is classic in defining the attributes of love. I'm going to read it from the New International Version because it's just much simpler. First Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4 through 8, and then jumping to verse 13, reads this way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, Depart the wedding scene for a moment, will you? <laughs> That's where we see this most of the time. Oh, read First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Well, okay, great. It's good. It's fitting. It's in a wedding. It's okay. I've done it lots of times. We're talking about us this morning, right here, right now. Love is patient. Let's see how far down the list we can get. On our own, most of us have just been disqualified at the first step. I could give tons of illustrations, but I think of moms and kids. I think of dads and families. Love is patient. (laughs) Some dad said, I'll show you love is patient. You're going to be the patient. (laughs) Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Here's the big one for me. It keeps no records of wrongs. I pray that God helps you with that one. You conquer that one. A lot of the other ones fall right into place. God keeps no record of my wrong. God forgives me completely, unequivocally. He loves me with agape love, unconditionally. One of the three definitions of the Greek words of love, agape, phileos, and eros. Eros is that fleshly, in-the-body love. Phileo is brotherly love, love for each other. But agape love is a distinctive word used by believers in describing the love of God. Even in literature, agape, this word is used to describe the unconditional, unmerited favor and love of God. It means you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't get it, you can't buy it, you can't make it yours. It's not yours to give, it's not yours to take by your own volition. It's something that God gives, unconditional. He just looks at you and says, gosh, I love you. I've often said this. I'll probably say it till I'm gone. You ask the question, why would God love us like he does? And the answer is just because he decided. He 
He just decided. So we can't change his mind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Love never fails. These are huge statements. In verse 13, it says, Now these three remain, and you've heard this before, and plaques are made, and they're hanging on walls, and they're in shops and gift stores. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. We've only put those up so often that they become trite, almost without meaning. It's just a little sign, and hang one over your door. But it's still truth from the Bible. These remain, faith, hope, and love. And the last sentence in bold letters, underlined, with neon flashes, but the greatest of these is love. Love is supreme. Love reigns over all. Love conquered your sin and mine. Love conquered the disobedience of mankind. Love is supreme. We all know God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might live. Love is supreme. Judgment sits in the back seat. Love drives the car. God's judgment is just, and all of us deserve, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to die for our sin. But love got in the front seat and put judgment in the back seat. It's still there. It's in the car. The judgment still exists, and God is just, and he will always make his just judgments. And in the end of time, we will come before the throne of judgments. And the various ones that are depicted in the Bible, judgment will occur. But I know, and you can know for beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you appear before the judgment throne of God, he's just going to say, hey, isn't it good that Jesus paid your debt? Come on in. You're welcome here. But God, don't you remember all? No, I... I put your sins as far as east is from west. I drop them into the sea of forgetfulness. I'm not holding any record of wrongs. I'm putting all of your future and all of your ability to live on the very fact that Jesus bore your sins to the cross for you and you're free to live and to allow him to live through you and to demonstrate the love of God in the earth. And when we come before him, we'll just get to walk into eternity. Invited there by a just God who paid the price for us. Love is supreme. I'll give you these three things. Love is supreme. Love is selfless. And love is redemptive. Three simple passages. John 3.16 for love is supreme. The second passage I'd point out is John 15.13. In pointing out love is selfless. Greater love has no man than this. But that a man would lay down his life. For his friends. Love is selfless. And aren't they some of the most moving accounts that we ever hear about or read when we find someone stepping in front of another person to save their life? At the peril of their own and maybe even the loss of their own. A parent. I heard this recently. I don't know the story, but I did hear it go by that a parent had just recently died in saving their child. 
you're shaking your heads. You watch whatever news program that covered that. But I, I don't know the circumstance. But I do know this. Love was selfless. Love makes the decision. I will go instead of them. How many of us have wept for our kids or our grandkids or our husbands or our wives and said, God, take me, but let them live? How many hospital visits and hospice settings have we been in where we said, God, this should be me, not them? especially if it's been a young person involved. They're just getting started in their life. God, take me, not them. And the selflessness rises up. You can't make that exchange. It doesn't work. But it still expresses that inside of us, we understand a little bit about love being selfless. Greater love has no man than this, that a man be willing to lay his life down for his friends. Love is redemptive. We find the account in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. They're having breakfast on the beach after the resurrection. Jesus has put on a little fish fry for the boys. He walks off to the side with Peter and looks him in the eye and says, Peter, do you love me? And what is ringing in Peter's mind? But the night he said, I don't know the man three times, the cock crowed. And and Peter has this resting upon his heart and his mind. I denied Christ. I said I didn't know you. One-on-one with the master. Peter, do you love me? Uh, Yeah, I, I love you, Lord. Good, feed my sheep. Peter, look at me. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I love you. And the exchange is taking place in these words, we understand. Peter, do you agape me? Well, Lord, you know I phileo you. Yeah, I have brotherly love. We're, yeah. No, Peter, do you love me? Finally, this third time, and most theologians agree on this, that Jesus took Peter through three Questions, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Peter denied Christ one, two, three times. And Jesus wanted to overcome every one of them and leave nothing to doubt that he was restored in relationship with Jesus. Peter, do you really love me? Do you agape me? And he said, Lord, you know. I don't know. You know whether or not I really love you. And I didn't write the Bible. I had to draw some of the scenes myself for my own benefit, but I would have put Jesus tackling Peter to the ground right there. Noogie in his head and saying, Peter, you and I are buddies. I'm the resurrected Lord, but I accept you unconditionally. Not only that, but I'm putting you in charge of instructing my people. See, love is redemptive, and when that redemption takes place and the supremacy of love comes and the selflessness of love comes and the redemption of love takes place, it's not without a purpose. Peter, now that you're restored, you're redeemed, and you know it, now you need to go and do something with it. Love the others. So you and I are not redeemed just to take our place in a seat on a Sunday morning and do nothing else all week long and just wait for heaven. We're charged with the command, love one another. 
inside the body, and then we're commanded to love outside the body of Christ to those who don't know him yet. We're commanded to be like the guys at Jack in the Box looking for a kid like me. I drove through town just the other day, and I saw all these probably look like middle schoolers and high school wannabes sitting on the sidewalk out front of the arcade, which I don't even know if it's open anymore. But right there is the same area where I got saved because somebody walked into that setting and said, do you want to talk about Jesus? And I just thought, God, am I going to get out of my car or not? Look at all those kids hanging out, talking, sinners, ripe for the picking because they need to know the same love I found. Peter, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. Go and take care of them. Speak to them truth. And understand that in the final days, they're going to carry you someplace you don't want to go. What are we saying? Give you a break. You want to read it with me? The Bible is our authority. Prayer is our means. Dependency on God is our posture. Restoring relationship between man and God is our passion. And love is our motive. Love moves us. I'm going to read to you, and Ed, if you want to put it up, you can. This is from the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson wrote the Message Bible. So it reads a little different. It's a paraphrase for sure. From Philippians chapter 2, and I hope this will ring out some strong points for us today. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Does this sound like the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, He lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all, to the glorious honor of the God of God the Father. 
what I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second-guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so that I'll have good cause to be proud of you on that day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't do all this work for nothing. With love as our motive, and we know that love comes from God for God is love, now we're challenged to look at the model. While love comes from God, he then gave us the model. The model is Jesus. I don't know about you. I think I could conclude that you're similar to me in this, that if you're going to get up against Jesus in comparison, you're probably going to come in second. (laughs) At least. Right? So we pulled up the model, consider Jesus. Oh, okay. I want to be like him. Well, he left everything. He was absolutely selfless. He sacrificed his deity. He became human. He was humbled to the point of the cross. Now let's talk about you. Oh, well, (laughs) not much to talk about. I'd like to hang on to my pride. I want to be first. I want to be most important. I want to be, I want, I want, I want. I got that I problem. No, let's consider Jesus the model for true love. And then let's let that mind that was in him be in us. This helps us live life accurately, sincerely, and I believe successfully in the eyes of God. Will it look good in the eyes of the world? Eh, Probably not. We'll look like the patsy. We'll look like the dupe. We'll look like the one that can be taken advantage of. We'll look like the pushover. We'll look like the emotional basket case, like Pastor Jeff. But we'll also be able to lay down at night and sleep. And we'll be able to wake up with hope, revived, saying, it's not about this life. It's like the Scotty McCreary saying, you know, this is, I'm just renting here. My home's in heaven. This is temporary. That's so biblical. This is just a tent. This is a tabernacle. This thing's going to perish. This is where I live. is going to be gone. It's all going to burn. But one day I'll be with him forever. And so on my way through here, I think I'll live by love, not by aggression and trying to be top dog and push my way over the tops of everybody else to get what I want. You know, the way to get up in life, I've always heard this and believed it, the way to get up in life is to get underneath somebody else and push them up first. And then when they get to where they need to be, they'll reach down and pull you up. Appreciated opening the service with the song from Matthew 22. It was in my notes. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus has just reduced the entire Bible to two sentences. Love God with everything you've got. And then turn around and love others the same way. When I was getting ready for this message, I thought, this is an impossible message to preach. You cannot talk successfully about the love of God as our motive in 30 or 40 minutes. It's just not doable. I was quivering. I, literally, my body was shaking. I thought, I can't do this. It's not possible. It's too big of a subject. But I feel like I'm scratching at it. I feel like I'm at least throwing an idea out for us that says maybe we could change the way we live, not ourselves, though. Maybe the, the lifestyle we have could be altered. But I'm not sure I can change it successfully. I can make some decisions about how I think it should look and, and change perhaps an attitude or two along the way that would have, I could anticipate being you know, attacked and what would I say in response and how could it be more godly and I want to think about those things. I do want to consider it, what I can do. I want to live by what we call the golden rule. You remember that one? You know, there's two of the golden rule of the Bible which says do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's real simple. The world's golden rule is whoever has the gold rules. Just get it and step on them and move on. We're so anti-world when we come to Christ. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. When he weighs our motives, I want him to find love as our motive. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. It's kind of like carpet. You can have a pretty ugly floor, but if you put carpet on it, it covers all the sins. Love covers the multitude of sins. Love's able to forgive. Love overcomes the hurt, the woundedness, the rejection. It has to. I mean, there may be some doubt about, is it really true? Can it be possible that I could be free from these aggravating thoughts of revenge or hatred that spur up in my life from time to time from past experiences with people? Can I ever be free from that? But the Bible tells me love wins. never fails. And all of the hatred of mankind entire pointed towards God. Because the Bible says that we are objects of wrath. We're just those waiting to receive his judgment because we're out of fellowship and we're sinners. All of that hatred towards God at once was overcome by his one act of love at the cross. The burial, the resurrection. He said, now that I'm alive forevermore, 
I hold the keys of hell and death. I'm alive forevermore, and you're welcome to come in. Love has conquered hatred and envy, unforgiveness and hurt in one fell swoop. And then he hands it to us and says, now it's yours. Yes, love can set you free. I tend to think I'm right in my own eyes most of the time, and people around me know that. I I know so much, and I'm so right about everything, that I even took on pencil sharpening yesterday. We were sharpening pencils in the the kids' zone for the kids. And I said, no, you got to do it like this. I thought, what an arrogant punk. (laughs) I know exactly how to sharpen pencils. Who knows these things? Just sharpen them any way you want to. I mean, as long as you get little points on them and they work, that's all we need. But no, no, not me. I know everything. When I read Proverbs 16, too, all the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motive. I'm not sure my motive was anything but love for kids and kids' home yesterday, but God still knows how to look inside of us when we don't even know what's there. What do I want you to do today? What do I want us to do? I want us to think about these things. I always fall to this quote by Henry Ford who said, Thinking is the hardest work, which is why so few people engage in it. But I'm hoping we'll think, ponder, muse, and discover our own motives. God, show me my motive. Show me what drives me. Show me who's in the driver's seat. Is it judgment or is it love? Is it something else? Demonstrate it to me. Help me to see it. Help me to think about it. Let me be honest between you and I. God, show me my motives. Your word says you weigh the motives. You know them. Talk to me. Second, I'd like for us to ask ask ourselves, how does true and godly love really act toward, and I've, I've written four subjects here, toward self. How does true love and sincere love of God act toward myself? And I could spend 15 minutes on that. But you do need to see yourself the way God sees you. And remember that he doesn't condemn you. He comes to set you free and replant and restore and redeem. So how would I treat myself if I treated myself by the love of God? Second, how would I treat, and then you insert a name or two. How would I treat this person and that person, this person, this person, if it was true and sincere love of God? How would I do that? Third, how would I treat my neighbors? How would I act toward my neighbors? And fourth, how would I act towards strangers? You know, I slip into self-centeredness at times, but I actually enjoy my life. How many of you enjoy your life? 
And I just love surprising people when they least expect it. I was at a doctor visit, for example, just this week. Got a clean bill of health. They think I'm great. They tell me I'm going to live forever. No problems at all, except for attitude. (laughs) And you need to work on that. They gave me a form and said, check all this information and see if it's right. I said, do you want me to fill in any blanks? No, no, just check what's there. So I checked was there. It was fine, but I saw a few blanks anyway, and I thought, hey, why not? Under marriage, there was nothing filled in, you know, single, et cetera, et cetera. So in the box for married, question mark, I wrote happily. They won't know how many years. And I just put happily, and I turned in the form. It's the only thing I wrote on the form. And I stood there as the girl went over it. And I saw when she hit the place, and she chuckled. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and I thought, why be normal? <laughs> why not connect with people somehow? Why not surprise them? Go ahead, open the door for them, guys. Surprise them. They don't expect it anymore. How would I act towards strangers? I would want to act. If I ask myself as simply as I'm asking you to ask yourself this question, I think I should act as Jesus might. And that's got some varied responses, right? Because Jesus was confrontive at times. Jesus was not always the most pleasant guy on the block to hang out with. But most of the time he was saying to somebody, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't give me any... You didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me the olive oil for my head. And, and uh, yet this, this, this prostitute here has been weeping at my feet and washing my feet with this alabaster ointment since I got here. Simon, if two men were forgiven, one was forgiven a million dollars, the other guy was forgiven a hundred, who, who would love the most, do you think? So oh, the guy that was forgiven most, he said, so it is with this woman. The one that's forgiven much loves much. The one that's forgiven little loves a little. Oh, Jesus wasn't always the most pleasant guy to have over for lunch. But I would want to act like Christ. And three, and this is probably the most important part of these three, is I want you to understand I want us to understand that we have, we must have the Holy Spirit to accomplish any of this. Why? Because in Galatians 5 it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Just before this it says the works of the flesh are these, and there's quite a list. And I tend to say in summary that I do my best works and it comes out looking like this list. That's the best I can work up. But when the Holy Spirit comes to live within, when the love of God comes to live within, and the very living God is resident inside, then just naturally, fruit grows naturally. We're at the picking season for lots of harvest stuff. And some of us like to go down to Oak Glen or somewhere like that and get in the apple orchards and pick a little bit. But I'm telling you, if you go in there in the middle of the night and you stand in the orchard and listen, you will not hear this. That tree is just trying to grunt to get the fruit out. (coughs) (coughs) This apple's never going to (coughs) come. 
No, it's a natural product. It just grows. Right? So you and I, we don't have the ability to grunt up the work of the Holy Spirit. It's natural. If we allow him to live in us, then the first one on the top, the fruit, the naturally occurring outflow of the life of God inside of you, the naturally occurring first order is love. It's got to be done by God's ability, not ours. We will fail. He will not fail. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law. You really want to love people? You want love to be our motive? Then he's going to have to live it out through us. We allow him to do it. We abide in Christ. We let Christ abide in us. And then that, and how many of you have ever read the book, In His Steps? Charles Sheldon. Put it up real high. How many have read the book, In His Steps? Okay, maybe a dozen of us. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, what would Jesus do? Oh, man, I got an armband. Are you kidding? You know, or the book, In His Steps, is where the phrase comes from. If you've never read it, pick it up. You can get it, probably 2 or $3. It's public domain. It's a great little book. I saw one next door for youth, In His Steps for Youth which is the, that's the version I read. <laughs> it's a lot easier. It's quicker, bigger print. But it, a community of believers began to ask the question, well, what would Jesus do? In every situation they encountered, they, they asked, what would Jesus do? Well, that's a good primer. I love the book, and I think the outcome was spectacular. And the revivals that took place because people stopped long enough to ask themselves the question, what would Christ do in this situation? It's a good primer. But after I ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? I need to be able to say, but he would do that because he's God and he's full of God. I need to be full of God too in order to be able to do what he would do. I can't just decide and act like it. It has to be genuine. It has to be his love flowing out. I don't have what it takes to do what Jesus said when he said, pray for those that despitefully use you. Love your enemies. That's when you know you've arrived. We did this a few weeks ago. We said, let's pray for somebody who doesn't like us. <laughs> it's easy to pray for people who love you. It's hard to pray for people that don't like you. Pray for your enemies. How do you know when you've actually made it to the point of forgiveness? You're able to think of your enemy whom you forgave and pray for God's good in their life. That's a big step. And I find myself choking on some names. How about you? You go, I've... Uh, I'm going to switch praying for this person. Uh, and I'll come back to that one in a minute. I'm going to pray for, oh, I'm going to have to pray for somebody else again until I get up. And, but I say, God, how do you see them? God, you have a plan for their life. You love them. We didn't get along at some point. There's a, there's a problem. But I choose to forgive because you do. And I'm praying for their good. I'm praying for their blessing. I'm asking you, God, increase their knowledge of you. Increase their ability to serve you. And if you can find a time for us to be restored in relationship before this side of heaven, then let's do that too. But for now, I still pray for them and love them as you. To understand true love, we just have to remember there's a story about a little boy who was born to parents who were not yet married. He lived his life in obscurity until he was 30, and then his life went public for three years, and the response of the public was to kill him by crucifixion and to put him in a grave that was 
overseen by guards, which he opened and came out of, and seated himself by God's grace and will at the right hand of the Father, and says, now you can have it all. And he sent the Holy Spirit as the guarantee, as the deposit of his return. And we have that Spirit now to live within us, and the fruit of the Spirit is possible if we'll allow him to live it out through us. Then we can honestly say inside this little value statement that love is our motive, always our motive. Father, thank you for giving us your Son. Thank you for your selflessness and your unselfishness. Jesus, thank you that you were not prideful to strive to hang on to your deity, but you released it to the Father so that you could come and redeem us, so that you could demonstrate to us how we could live as men and women on the earth until you're coming. Father, I pray that you will empower us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Empower us to live as he would live. We are your body. You're the head. We're the body. And I pray that you would bring your body into alignment in such a way wherever we work, wherever we live, whatever our family looks like, that you would launch us on a campaign to allow you to indwell us and live through us this love as a motive. Father, may you remind us of the things we've read here today, how that love puts others first, how that love doesn't keep records of wrongs. How that love is so overarching and forgiving and able to put up with so much. We want to be like you. We truly want to represent you, to represent Christ in the earth. Use us and may your fruit generate naturally in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need ministry of any kind or prayer, if you don't even know this Jesus we're talking about, I'd love to introduce him to you personally. I'd love to pray for you. And we'll stick around to do that. Now, this goes without saying, but I'll say it. Love one another. <laughs> Amen.